today we are doing an overview of the book of Titus. And we're going to be spending a little more time on uh, one element of a service than we normally do. First uh, Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Uh, today we're actually going to uh, read through the entire book of Titus. Uh, usually as we go through, we take uh, little snippets, little small chunks out of the book, and then proceed forward. Today we're going to look at the whole book, uh, and hopefully a couple things will happen. Hopefully there'll be a couple of themes that appear throughout the book that you will see better as you look at the whole rather than uh, chopped up in little bits. Uh, and second of all, we uh, will get to hear more of the Word of God in our service. Uh, One thing I would encourage you to do as you read the scriptures and as you study uh, the word in your own personal uh, devotionals and at other times uh, is to vary the lengths of scripture you read. There are sometimes it might be profitable and encouraging just to take one verse or even one phrase and camp out there and think about it and devote it. And I think there are other times that you want to get a wide range. You want to try and read a whole book as it stands in completion. Uh, one of the things I think of is um, kind of the way we normally do in, in, in our service here. Uh, read through a book is kind of unusual. Uh, because uh, imagine somebody getting a letter and they read, uh, dear, dear so-and-so, I hope you're doing well. And then they just stop there and then don't continue reading the letter for the rest of the week. No. That's not what happens when you get a letter. When you get a letter, what do you do? Read through the whole thing. You you go through it all. Uh, If it's a letter of somebody you like or interested in, you might go back and then start picking apart phrases. But one of the things you do first is you read through the whole thing. So today we're going to read through the whole book of Titus. Then we're going to look at kind of the structure of the book, and then we're going to look at what are some takeaways from the overarching themes of the book that we can find. So hear with me the word of the Lord from the book of Titus, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect... And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifest in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted, by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families, by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up divisions, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray as we study your word that you would help us to better understand what it means, to better believe what it says, and to better apply what it commands. In the beautiful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. We have in the book of Titus a, a, quite an interesting flow of thoughts and ideas. And by the way, it's always a, a dangerous thing for a person like me who goes through verse by verse uh, to try and do something uh, long and broad. In fact, I think of, uh, you know, as a speaker, there, there are times when you hear speeches and messages uh, and, and you kind of have a grade system where you're, you're thinking about, okay, how good a speech was that? You know, it's a, a problem in my line of work. You kind of grade people on what they say in the content. And one of the worst messages I've heard in any context uh, was somebody who came out and, and gave a speech and their speech was just the highlights you know, the main point, the, the kind of punch oomph moment of every single speech I think the person had ever heard. And they, they did just listed them out. So it was like, you know, all these uh, aphorisms and affirmations, just one after another. And, and it was awful. Now, the danger in going through the book of Titus is that you, you just have all these highlight reels that are kind of unconnected. And I'm going to try not to do that. I'm going to try and give you some connection, some flow of the book. But I will warn you, it's hard not to fall into that with a message like this. In the beginning of this passage, uh, we have a greeting from Paul. And Paul identifies himself as a servant and an apostle for the benefit of the elect. Uh, he talks about the truth which accords with godliness. And Paul has a tendency, by the way, in his messages to kind of set up everything else that's coming in the book. 
And and that key phrase, the truth that accords with godliness, is something that's going to run through the rest of the book. Uh, In the hope of eternal life that's promised by God who does not lie. He's been entrusted with this gospel. And he addresses it to Titus, a child in the common faith. He gives them then the best blessing he can, uh, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Jesus Christ. He then exhorts Titus uh, that, Titus, the reason why I left you there in Crete is to set things in order, to set the church right, to make sure it's in a good position. And Titus is to do this by setting godly, faithful teaching elders over the church who can oppose those who teach false doctrine. Now, the setting up of people who can refute false doctrine was not just a theoretical if if this happened some point. No, it was already happening. There were ungodly false teachers threatening the church by teaching what is untrue, myths and commands made by man. Now, It's interesting. In the introduction, he talks about the God who does not lie. That's an interesting designation. And it's particularly interesting in the context of Crete. Uh, Because Crete was a place where Zeus worship was at its height, at its zenith. And if any of you have taken mythology or or, or read anything about the exploits of Zeus, uh, he is not an honest guy. He's not a good guy. He lies, he cheats, he steals. uh, If he sees a woman he likes, he will do all sorts of bizarre, manipulative, and deceptive things in order to be able to sleep with her. And in, in that context, what do the people of Crete believe about the gods? They believe the gods lie, the gods cheat, the gods steal. And therefore, why shouldn't we? In, in the introduction, he's even setting up, there's a God who does not lie. And these false teachers are people you need to be aware of. Why? Because they're lying about God and what he's like. They're giving, presenting myths and commands of men as though they were the truth and as though they were the commands of God. Uh, this allowed the church in Crete to live as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In other words, it allowed them to live exactly as the culture around them lived. Titus was to rebuke them harshly. And the hope of the rebuke was that they would return to the faith. Uh, These false teachers acted like they knew God in order to profit off of others. It says they were teaching for shameful gain. But Paul says that their works denied that they knew him. They professed to know God, but they deny him by their works. Paul says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. As opposed to these false teachers, and now we're getting into chapter 2, as opposed to these false teachers, Titus was to teach people to honor God through godliness and self-control in whatever position and condition in life God had placed them. 
And he lists through various things that uh, older men should do, older women should do, younger women should do, young men should be do, what Titus should do as a teacher in the church, and what bond slaves were to do. In all their activities, one of the things they were supposed to do was to live lives in a way that might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. By the way, uh, chapter 2 begins with uh, this saying, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And what would you expect to follow a claim to, Hey, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, if you're like me and you went to seminary and things like that, you're, you're, you're expecting some heavy, dense theology. But what does he teach instead? He teaches, how do you live practically in the position God has placed you in a godly manner? Doctrine and lifestyle are intimately connected. This godly living that they were to do was uh, motivated by an understanding of what of Christ's work. That is, the appearance of Christ's grace at the cross and the coming appearance of Christ's glory at His return should motivate believers to live godly lives, recognizing that Christ has redeemed us to be for Him a people who are zealous for good works. And, and this is where we get our, the title for our series, The Zeal of the Redeemed. We aren't just zealous for the sake of being zealous. We're zealous because we understand where we have been placed. We're living in an in-between. We're, we're living after Christ has come to earth, died on the cross, rose again. But we're not yet at the place where Christ has returned where He's come to restore all things, where He's come to set up His rule and authority over earth. We're living in an in-between. And where we've come from, that is our origin and our destiny, should determine our activity. One of the things I I think about when I think about this, uh, because of Easter, uh, you think about a little bit the in-between. Went to a Good Friday service, and then, you know, in the Good Friday service, you, you are commemorating the death of the Lord. And then Easter, you're commemorating the resurrection. And I think about that in-between time. After Christ has died, but before He rose again. And that in-between time, by the way, is one of the reasons why I am affirmed and confirmed that the Bible is true, is because of what the disciples did and didn't do during that time. They didn't realize He was coming back to life. They were hiding. They were cowering. They were trying to figure out, what do we do with our lives now that he's dead? Now, can can you imagine the difference in attitude? Can you imagine the difference in expectation if they knew and were sure that Christ was going to rise again on the third day? Can you imagine how that stretch of time between the death and the resurrection, how different it would have been for the disciples had they known and anticipated that? Can you imagine how different it would be? Radically different. Instead of fear, hope. Instead of worry, anticipation. Instead of cowering and hiding, they would be bold and active in the work. 
You know, we're living in another in-between. After Christ has died, rose, rose again, resurrected, sorry, <laughs> the same thing. He rose again, that is, He resurrected, and He has ascended on high. There's coming a time when He will return down. Saints, you need to be confident of that. You need to be assured of that. And therefore live in boldness, in hope, in anticipation, in obedience to the One who is coming to make right all things. This leads the people of God to be zealous for good works. Timothy is to remind the church in Crete that they are to be ready for every good work. And and the ways in which they do this are surprisingly simple. To be good citizens who are submissive to the rulers and authorities over them. To be civil and kind. And by showing goodwill towards all. A motivation for this uh, goodness and grace towards people who often don't deserve it, including the rulers and authorities set over them, They're living at a point in the empire of Rome where there is a lot of active, local, and at times empire-wide opposition to Christianity. Yet they're still to be submissive and kind towards those who are opposing and persecuting them. Why do they do this? A motivation for this goodness towards those who often don't deserve it is that the believers in Crete were also once entrapped and enslaved by ungodliness. Despite their former ungodliness, God saved them, not based on their own merit, not based on their own righteousness, not based on their own works, but based on His righteousness through His mercy. This salvation was poured out richly, through Christ Jesus, who justifies them by His grace and secures their hope for an eternal inheritance. Titus is is to insist on these things. He's to uh, promote these things. He's to not let people ignore the truth of these things so that the saints will devote themselves to profitable good works. Notice the order. The good works don't become before salvation. The good works come after salvation. They're not saved by good works, but they're saved for good works. They're to avoid distractions and divisions that would keep them from good works, knowing that those who stir up these divisive issues are self-condemned. Paul closes the book exhorting Titus and the church to partner with him in the gospel ministry by devoting themselves to good works and by aiding those who are working in ministry and missions. That's an overview of the structure and flow of the book. And and from this we can kind of take an overarching theme that because we serve a gracious God who has saved us by Christ's grace, and promised us an inheritance at Christ's return, we are to be zealously devoted to good works. The zeal of the redeemed is devotion to good works. Now, from this, there, there's some other themes we can draw out. Uh, firstly, that the character of God matters. And the character of God, as it's revealed in the book of Titus, has two emphases. One, that God does not lie. And two, 
is that God is gracious and merciful towards sinners. God does not lie. Therefore, we can trust His promises. God does not lie. Therefore, what He has said can be believed. God does not lie. Therefore, the gospel message about what Christ has accomplished at His first coming and what He will accomplish in His second coming are completely trustworthy. God does not lie. Therefore, our salvation is secure in Christ's first coming. God does not lie. Therefore, our inheritance is secure at Christ's second coming. God is gracious and merciful. God is gracious and merciful. Therefore, we can be saved. God is gracious and merciful. Therefore, we can have hope. The fact that God is not a liar gives us hope in His Word, gives us hope in His promises. The fact that God is gracious and merciful to sinners means that we can inherit those promises. That not just are the promises of God true, but that they can apply to someone like me, who's rotten and sinful and wretched. The character of God matters, and the character of God's people matters. Uh, We've said uh, before and mentioned this a little bit, that the people in Crete reflected the character and nature of their God. They served the God Zeus, and who was a liar, who was wicked, indulgent, who was gluttonous. And the people of Crete then reflected the character and nature of the God they served. They were liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, like their gods. Uh, throughout the book of, of Titus, there's this theme that uh, the, the, what you do with your life, the way in which you live, reflects back upon the type of God you serve. He says there are false teachers who claim to know God, but their works deny that they know God. There's an accusation that there is certain activity that should be avoided by the people of God because if they engage in that activity, it will cause unbelievers to revile the Word of God. And then there's a certain type of activity that is said to adorn the doctrine of God by the way in which they live. Our works will either deny, revile, or adorn the gospel message that we proclaim. The character of the people of God testifies to the character of their God. So we see then uh, there's obviously a connection between the first and the second point, that the character of God matters, therefore the character of God's people matters. Why? Because it reflects on the character of God. So because God does not lie, the elders in the church ought to hold firm to the word of God and give instruction and sound doctrine. Because God does not lie... The God, uh, the, the people of God ought to avoid myths, false commandments, and foolish teaching, controversial teachings. Because God does not lie, the people of God ought to be honest and fair in their dealings with others. 
Because God does not lie, the people of God have hope in His promises. Because God is gracious and merciful, the people of God are to called to be relationally self-controlled and godly. That is, the older men, the older women, the younger women, the young, younger men, the slaves, all are to live in such a way that shows sacrificial selflessness rather than lazy self-indulgence. Because God is gracious and merciful, the people of God are called to be submissive to rulers, to be civil towards all, even those who are unkind to them. Because God is gracious and merciful, the people of God have been redeemed. Not of their own works, but out of His own grace and mercy. Because God is gracious and merciful, the people of God have hope in His promises. The honesty of God allows us to trust His promises, His mercy and grace, as we've said, allow us to be recipients of those promises. And if we follow this thread that's throughout the book of Titus, we see that doctrine and action are inseparable. That what you believe about God inevitably manifests itself in and through your life. Thirdly, we see that there's a process at work through all of this. Uh, much of the book of Titus uh, is, uh, part of it deals with uh, salvation, that we have been saved, but it's largely dealing with people who already have been saved, but need to be living in light of that salvation. Uh, we call that process, that word, sanctification. Becoming what God has already declared us. That is, He's declared us sons. He's declared us heirs. He's declared us holy. He's declared us righteous. Yet He is working through us this process of becoming what He has already declared us to be. Sinners saved by Christ's righteousness and not their own works. Saved so that they might be redeemed and belong to Christ. Once they belong to Christ, they are to begin being about the things that Christ is about. So now they're a redeemed people who are dedicated to good works. They're not saved by good works, but they're saved for good works. Works never save, but the saved are always accompanied by good works. The redeemed are to be uh, zealous in their pursuit of these good works. That, that is, they're to, be, to have a, a sort of fanaticism. We talked about zealots in, in this day and age uh, were the people who looked at the Roman Empire, uh, a bloody, powerful empire. Uh, the Roman Empire, by the way, there are people groups that no longer exist because they came in contact with the Romans. They, they didn't conquer all that land by being nice and friendly. And in, in fact, the Roman gladius, which was uh, their sword that their common soldiers used, uh, had the record for the implement that was used in the most deaths of people until the invention of the handgun. Now that's for hundreds and hundreds of years after the Roman Empire isn't even there anymore. They held that record. They were a brutal and a bloody people. Zealots in this day and age were the people that looked at the Roman Empire and said, yeah, I want to take them on. You had to be fanatical. 
you had to be a little bit crazy. You had to be concerned about something more than your own life. He's saying, I want you to be zealous for good works. I want you to be determined. But we see that this determination, this zeal, isn't automatic. It isn't you're saved and then the next day you're going around doing good works. You're perfectly prepared. When people cut you off in traffic, you say, God bless you. You say a prayer for them as they roll on by. You know, anytime there's a need, you respond instantly and automatically. No, it doesn't come automatically. The passages with good works say that the people who are prepared to do them have to be purified. They have to be careful to devote themselves to good works. They have to be ready. They have to be prepared for every good work. They have to learn to devote themselves to good works. The, the commands of the language around good works indicate that this is a high priority for believers, but they must be intentionally, consistently, and fervently dedicating themselves to pursuing these good works. Our origin and our destiny determine our activity. Our origin as believers is in Christ, in the cross, in the resurrection. Our destiny is eternal life with Christ. That is our inheritance. Our origin and our destiny determine our activity. Our activity is to be zealously devoted to good works. The grace has appeared. The glory will appear. This ought to motivate us to live godly lives in the present age. Until He returns again, or until we die and go to Him, may we be found faithful and fruitful in this activity. Receive now the benediction, which comes from Titus 1, verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.